Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. This morning and in these evening sessions, we're going to talk about the topic of money. And I know for, for some Christians, that might be an uncomfortable topic when you hear, oh, we're going to talk about money in church. I mean, that seems, uh, isn't that a little bit unnecessary? After all, can't we talk about more spiritual things? Can't we talk about, you know, mercy or joy or prayer? Wouldn't those be more appropriate topics for us to talk about? And the simple answer of why we need to talk about money and wealth and possessions within the context of church is because the Bible talks a lot about money. Uh, you'll see there in, in your handout, if you, if you want to keep notes this morning, that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible on the subject of material wealth. Now, remember, we live in a currency-based society today that, you know, all of our transactions are, are primarily driven by uh, by, by currency, a dollar amount exchange. But, but back in Bible times, yes, there was currency, but wealth was measured many different ways, through livestock, through land, through precious metals, through things like this. And so when, when you really look at how much the Bible has to say about material wealth, it's, it's quite a lot. But not only that, but Jesus himself talks a lot about money. In the recorded gospels, we find that Jesus talks more about money than he does about heaven or hell or prayer or faith, not because money is a more important topic, but because Jesus understood that money often connects us and helps us to understand the deeper truths of God's word. And so we need to talk about money because God talks about money quite a lot. And so within this, this broad scope of Christianity, this kind of wide umbrella of folks who would claim the name of Christian, I do see some very extreme views, uh, unbiblical views, when it comes to this area of money. Now, on one extreme, we have what we call the prosperity gospel. And just so you're aware, the prosperity gospel is this belief that if I live a life for God, that guarantees me material wealth and blessings. If I just live for God, I'm going to have more money, I'm going to have a nicer house, I'm going to have a nice car, I'm going to be healthy, and my life is going to be really comfortable and great. And the Bible does not teach that uh, in any form. In fact, we have to look no farther than some of the most godly people who ever lived recorded for us in the Bible to find out that that's not true. Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about John the Baptist. Think about Jesus himself who lived lives of extreme poverty. Was that a result of their lack of godliness? Of course not. So that's one extreme. But on the other extreme, I see something that I would call the, the poverty gospel. And, and this is not so much explicitly taught as it is more of, I think, a, a belief some people hold without even realizing it. And that's this idea that if you really live for God, if you're really spiritual, you won't have any money that having wealth and having money is somehow a sign that you don't trust God, that you're materialistic and that you care more about things of this world than things of heaven. And that's not what the Bible teaches either. Again, think about some of the folks in the Bible who had a heart for God, like Abraham, like King David, like Job, who were extraordinarily wealthy. See, wealth and money are not indicators of godliness. Your net worth is not a barometer for how much you love the Lord. 
So let's, in this first lesson, let's begin to discuss uh, the important questions. And by the way, let me say this. When we talk about being rich, okay, can, can we all acknowledge that as we sit here in America in the 21st century, we are in the most prosperous nation in the world and in all of recorded history. So maybe by American standards, you would not consider yourself to be rich, but by world standards and by historical standards, every single person sitting in this room today is extraordinarily wealthy. And so what we have to do is we have to acknowledge that God has blessed us tremendously, but there also comes responsibilities with that. So, so what does the Bible have to say about money? In this first session, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about giving, and then tonight we're going to talk about what does the Bible have to say about spending and saving. We're just going to go verse by verse, passage by passage, draw Bible principles, maybe make a little bit of application, but we're going to stay very much tethered to what the Bible says. And, and I, I have to warn you that in uh, this morning's message, my introduction is about half of the message. So when the introduction is over, uh, believe me, I, I know the introduction is a little bit longer today, but it's important for us to lay out some foundational principles in order for us to really understand what the Bible says about giving and saving and spending. So let's start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. We're going to have some of these verses up on the screen. I'd encourage you if, you, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible as well. Matthew chapter 6, the greatest sermon ever recorded, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking here in Matthew chapter 6. And notice what he says in verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And don't miss this, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, how we manage our money and how we spend our money is an indication of our priorities. Pastor Thompson just said, you know, our checkbook or our bank account or our credit card statement, however you, you do your purchases, it's an indication of your priorities. It shows you what's important to you. Your heart and your money are, are linked together. They cannot be separated. So it's almost like saying, wherever I go, my hand goes. And wherever my hand goes, I go. We are linked. We cannot be separated. They go together. Your heart and your money go together. So you invest money in the things that you care about. And you care about the things you invest money in. That's why your dad was always yelling at you as a kid to turn the lights off in the house. You ever wonder why dad was always so grumpy about turning off the lights? Because you didn't pay the electric bill. He did. And so he, he, was, he cared about you turning off the lights because I have to pay the bill at the end of the month, right? You, you care about the things you spend money on, and the things you spend money on you will inevitably care about. So in order for us to, have, uh, to be faithful Christians, we have to understand two foundational principles. And so here's the first one this morning. The first foundational principle is ownership. Ownership. Our money belongs to God. Ownership. Our money belongs to God. And, and when I say that, I don't think there's a lot of people that would push back on that initially. We understand intellectually, but we have to, have to let that permeate our hearts, not just have the intellectual knowledge, but in our everyday life, we have to continually remind ourselves of this truth. 
So let's lay out the case. Not that I think many people would disagree with me, but let's, let's lay it out biblically. Why does everything belong to God? Well, let's look first at Psalm 24, verse 1. Psalm 24, verse 1. We'll go kind of rapid fire through some of these passages here. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So the earth is the Lord's. Why? Well, because he created it. He made it. It's his, right? Not only that, Job 41, verse 11. Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. Again, creation. So our universe, our solar system, uh, the planet on which we live, it all belongs to God. The creation, the plant, the animal life, it's all his. But not only that, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 and 20. Uh, Paul says this to the Corinthian church, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So not only is creation and the universe and the planet and the plant and the animal life, not only is that all God's, but even ourselves, our body, we were made by him and we belong to him. But not only that, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18 says this, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Isn't that interesting? That not only do our bodies belong to the Lord, but he says, even your ability to earn money in the first place, that belongs to God. Your skills, your intellect, your ability, your energy, those are all gifts from God. We are not guaranteed those things. 1 Samuel 2.7 says something very similar. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. See, nothing in life is truly ours. God made it all, and he can take it away at any time. So before we get lifted up with pride to say, yeah, see this business that I've built? See this income that I make? See this house that I bought? Look at these things that I've acquired? Well, hold on a second. Who even gave that to you in the first place? Who made you? Who gave you the skills and the ability and energy and time that you even have? It's all God's. And he can take it away from us just as easily as he has given it to us. So we need to be humble and we need to be wise to remember the source of everything that we have. Now, let me give you two quick examples in the Bible of people who were confronted with this truth of ownership and had two very different reactions. And these are not up on the screen. You can turn to them if you'd like, but we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19 first. Matthew chapter 19. This first person who was confronted with the truth of ownership was a rich young ruler. And in Matthew 19, verse 16, I'll begin reading, uh, and behold, Matthew 19, 16, and behold, one came and said unto him, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. So this, this young man says, what, what do I need to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, if you can keep the commandments, then you'll have eternal life. And, and the young man says, uh, which? He saith unto him, which? Which commandments? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? So it's very interesting. So Jesus says, Okay, well, here's six commandments for you. Do these, and if you can do these perfectly, you'll have eternal life. 
And the young man says, mm -hmm, yeah, I've done those. Check, 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 check. Now, the reality is I'm sure that he had not, but in his mind, he thought that he had. And notice Jesus here, he knows this man's heart. He knows truly what's deep down in his motivations. And so Jesus is going to pinpoint the one thing that is keeping him from following Jesus. And notice what it is. It says, what, uh, what, what, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, this rich young man could not embrace the truth of ownership. When it came down to it, when Jesus said, here's the one thing you need to do, you need to give away your money and follow me, he couldn't do it. Because in his mind, he was not willing to accept that his money did not belong to him, that it was all God's in the first place. And when Jesus said, the one thing that you need to do to follow me is to part with your money, he said, I can't do it. And, and can I say this this morning, that if God is not Lord over your money, he is not Lord of your life. If God cannot tell you what to do with your money, then he is not God in your life. Your money is. And so here's an example of a man that was confronted with the truth of ownership and he rejected it. But now let's look at a positive example. Well, before we do that, I, a quick story here. Um, so, so we just came through Christmas. Uh, my family traveled up to Virginia to see my parents for Christmas. And so we opened presents. And I've got three small kids. So of course, the, the grandparents spoiled them and gave them all kinds of toys. My daughter is going to be two in a couple weeks. And so she doesn't have a lot of her own toys. She, she's kind of inherited a lot of the, her older brother's toys. So she doesn't have a lot of like girly toys. Well, she got a little tea set. And she was so excited. And so like not even a half hour after presents have been opened, she's got the table and she's got her tea set. And she's got her stuffed animals in the chairs and she's doing the whole thing. And, and I mean, literally 30 minutes after we're done opening presents and it was great and it was so much fun. We took pictures. All of a sudden I hear from the other room this, this scream, no, no, mine. And what had happened was one of her brothers tried to take one of her cups and she was not having it. No, don't you dare take that cup. That is my tea set. And it's funny and it's, it's, it's maybe a little bit cute to, to see kids and their, you know, kind of their conception of, of, of what is theirs and what they get upset about. But can I say that in, in a much more sobering way, I think that's how God has to see us sometimes. But here we are with our stuff and God says, hey, hey can, you, can you give to, to your church? Can you give to missions work? Can you give to those who are less fortunate? And we're, no, mine. That's my house, my car, my income, my retirement. Don't you dare tell me what to do with it. And it's not ours in the first place. None of it belongs to us. It all belongs to God. Let's look at another example, okay? Let's look at a positive example. Luke chapter 19 and verse 8. Luke chapter 19 and verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood. So you remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to sing the song. You don't want to hear me sing. All right. You remember the, the, the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, climbed up in a sycamore tree. Well, Jesus came to Jericho. He's walking through. Zacchaeus could not see him, literally climbed up in a tree, a sycamore tree, to see the Lord. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm coming to eat at your house today. 
And all the people in the crowd were amazed by this because Zacchaeus was a publican. He was a tax collector. You have to understand that in that world, that time frame, with the, the Roman government in charge, the tax collectors were, were, were Jews that had uh, decided to help the Romans. They were uh, considered traitors to the cause. How dare you help the Romans in their oppression of us? And not only that, but the publicans and tax collectors were notoriously corrupt. What they would do is they would make sure that they would extract the taxes that Rome demanded of them, but anything more that they could extract from the people, they would keep for themselves. So they would be extraordinarily wealthy because they, they were corrupt and they would use bribery and extortion and they were hated by the people of that day. So when Jesus said, I'm coming to Zacchaeus's house, people thought, why, why would he go to, to his house? But notice that Zacchaeus here is a sincere seeker of the Lord and his encounter with Jesus changes him, and he has a moment of faith. And notice what happens here in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. See, Zacchaeus understood who Jesus was. And he was committing his life to following him. But immediately what he decided to do was to part with the money that he had uh, dishonestly gained. He said, here's what I'm going to do, Jesus. I'm going to give 50% of my net worth away to the poor. And then if I have cheated anybody, if I have done them wrong, I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to pay them back fourfold. I'm going to make it more than right. And notice what Jesus' response is to Zacchaeus' statement. He doesn't say, oh, that's great, Zacchaeus. That's a really generous thing for you to do. No. Verse 9, Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus understood that this decision to be generous went way deeper than just an act of charity. No, 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 no. Zacchaeus' heart and life had been changed. He was confronted with the truth that his money did not belong to him. And Jesus says, that's because you have had a moment of faith. This is a moment of salvation in this encounter. So when you realize that things are not your, that your stuff is not yours, it changes your attitude about it. Have you ever borrowed somebody's car? Do you treat it like your car? Well, you shouldn't. Maybe you do treat it like your car, but you shouldn't, right? It's not yours. You try to take better care of it. If our money belongs to God, shouldn't he have a say in how it's used? Shouldn't we ask him what he would have us to do with his money? I think so. So that leads us to our second foundational principle. Not only ownership, it all belongs to God, but number two, stewardship. Stewardship. We are to manage God's money. And that's what a steward is. A steward is a manager. He is somebody who has been entrusted with something that belongs to another. And his job is to be faithful to the wishes of the true owner. A manager, it's not his, belongs to somebody else, and his job is to do uh, the best with that responsibility to honor the wishes of the true owner. And that's what we are. We're stewards. Let's look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, starting verse 14. This is a long passage. It goes all the way through verse 30. We're not going to read the whole passage. We'll read the first few verses. Very famous parable here. And a lot for us to, to draw from this parable. Matthew 25, verse 14 says this, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. 
And unto one he gave five talents, and talent would be a, 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 a denomination of money here, and to another two, and to another one. So one guy gets five, two, one different amounts. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained another two. And he that had received one went and digged in the earth and did and hid his Lord's money. So, so as the parable goes on, what we find out is when the, 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 the owner, the master comes home, he commends the first two servants. They did a great job of, of managing his money, of being responsible, of, of acting in his best interest. But then that third servant says, well, I was afraid, I didn't want to mess up, I was fearful, and uh, here's your money back. I didn't lose it at least. And, and the master is irate and he says, how could you do something so wicked? How could you not act in my best interest? How could you be so self-centered in how you use what I entrusted you with? You should have at least given it to the banker so I could have had some interest when I returned. And that money was taken from him and given to the one that had five talents, the one who had been responsible and faithful. Now, what can we learn from this parable? Well, first of all, I noticed that you know, we've all been given resources, but we've not been given the same resources. We, we understand that, right? That God does not entrust all of us with the same talents, the same amount of time, or even the same amount of resources, but that does not excuse us from being responsible. Just because we've been entrusted by less than others doesn't mean we're less accountable. So, so maybe you sit here in this room today and you're like, wow, I live in Newport Beach and I mean, man, there's some money here. There's some really rich people. They should, do, they, they should be responsible with their money. I mean, they've been given a lot. They should really be generous. They should be charitable. They should be doing things for the community. But me, I mean, I just have kind of a normal, regular salary. I don't make all that much. I mean, I'm struggling to get by. So how I spend my money doesn't really matter to God. Oh, oh no, no, no. Of course it does. Just because you have less than another doesn't mean you're going to be less accountable to God for what he's given you. He doesn't expect the same results, but he does expect faithfulness. And God always rewards faithfulness, not always here in this life, but always in eternity. Just because we're responsible with what he's given us doesn't mean like the prosperity gospel that we're going to get more money and have health and wealth, but it does mean that God does reward us at least in eternity. Let's look at Luke chapter 16 verse 10 and 11. Luke chapter 16. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So notice the principle here. Faithful in a little, faithful in much. How you manage a little is an indicator of how you will manage a lot. Could I submit this morning that maybe the reason that God has not entrusted you with more responsibility, with more resources, is because you haven't been faithful with the little bit that he's given you. Now, we'd like to think that if I won the lottery or if I inherited millions of dollars from some distant relative, I would really do some great stuff with it. I mean, I would give so much to the church. I would give so much to missions. I would do this. I would do that. I would help out this person. And we think that, oh, if I just had more, that's what would solve the problem. And it doesn't work that way. If we're not willing to be obedient, if we're not willing to be responsible with what we have right now, why on earth would God want to entrust us with more? If you're an employer, if you're a manager, and you need to promote somebody, who are you looking for? 
Are you looking for the person who just punches the clock, who has a mediocre attitude, who's just trying to get by, who does a half-hearted job at their, at their work? Or are you looking for the person who's, who's a go-getter, who has a great attitude, who, who goes above and beyond, who takes their role seriously? Of course, you want to promote the person who is responsible in the role that they are in right now. So here's the question. Based on your management thus far, should God entrust you with more? I mean, honestly, with, with how you're doing right now with what God has given you, should he entrust you with more, or is there still work to do? So that was my lengthy introduction. We have to understand ownership. It all belongs to God. We have to understand stewardship, that we are managers of God's money, and we have a responsibility to act in God's best interest because it's his money after all. So now let's transition into what the Bible has to say about giving, and I have three statements here about giving. Let's start with number one, giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. See, we tend to think of worship as a so kind of an emotional experience, right? At least within our context. That prayer and singing and meditation is worship. And, and certainly they are. That, that is, that is, those are expressions of worship. But worship is really an acknowledgement of who God is. And we can worship in many different ways. And when we give, we are expressing worship to God. Did you know that? That when you place money in the offering plate, when you give uh, online and, and you make a, a, a contribution from your bank account, that that is a form of worship. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. Let's, let's lay this out biblically. Why is giving an act of worship? Acts chapter 17, this is Paul standing on Mars Hill and he's speaking to the crowd and he says this in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Notice that phrase there, that God, uh, as though he needed anything. You know, Paul is saying, so God is not some stone statue sitting in a temple that needs us to uh, give time and devotion and care to him. He doesn't need anything. Did you know, folks, God doesn't need our money. We have to remember that. God is not up there in heaven wringing his hands like, oh man, if Liberty Baptist Church would just kind of dig a little bit deeper, I could really do some stuff in this world. But until they do, I don't know what I'm, I, I, I don't know, I'm at a loss. No, he's God. He's all powerful. He is sovereign. God's work will go forward and be accomplished whether you are involved or not. But we have the opportunity, we have the privilege to worship God and have a part in what he is doing in this world. Let's look now at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18. Philippians 4 verse 18. Paul here writing again to the Philippian church, he says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Now notice this. So, so the Philippians had given some monetary support to Paul as he was traveling for his food, for his transportation, for his lodging. As he's going around doing gospel work, they sent him money to help him along his way. And Paul says, thank you, I got your gift, I got the money that you sent, but notice how he describes their gift that they gave. He says that it was an odor, uh, a sweet smell, a sacrifice well-pleasing to God. Just like a sacrifice that would have been offered in the temple, something that would have been laid on the altar, and the smell and the smoke of that, that, that 
uh, sacrifice would have been raised up to God and God would have seen that as well-pleasing. He said that's what your gift was. Your monetary contribution was in God's sight like an act of worship, a sacrifice offered to God. So we have to remember that, that when we're giving to our church, when we're giving to those in need, yes, we are helping them, but in God's eyes, that is something that is well-pleasing and it's an expression of worship to him. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. This is the wise men who came from the east to travel the long distance to see the young child Jesus. And it says, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. See, when the wise men came from far away to see King Jesus, remember they went to Herod first, they said, we've seen a star in the east, we're come to worship him. And when they finally got to the young child Jesus and had their opportunity to express their adoration for the Messiah, how did they choose to do it? Well, one of the ways is that they gave gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were not uh, little trinkets. These were not stocking stuffers. These were incredibly valuable gifts that cost lots of money. And what they were saying essentially is, we value you, King Jesus. We, 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 we value you so deeply that we're willing to, uh, to spend an exorbitant amount of money to present you these gifts to show you just how much you are worth to us. Giving is a form of worship. All throughout the Bible, we see this pattern of giving God what is first, giving God what is best, making him priority in our giving. All the way back to Abraham and how he paid tithes to Melchizedek the priest, as we read in Hebrews chapter 7, the Israelites offered the first fruits of their crops, literally the first of the harvest that would be given as, a, as an offering to the Lord and to, to the work of the temple. The first city conquered in the promised land, Jericho, was not to be spoiled, unlike future cities that could be spoiled. No, the first city that belongs to God, don't take any of the spoils. The acceptable sacrifice was the spotless lamb, not just any lamb from the flock, the spotless lamb, the best lamb. The firstborn was dedicated to the Lord. Uh, the firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance. Uh, by the way, uh, you, some of you know my dad, he's, he's preached here before. I've been trying to help him with this passage. As the firstborn child, I do deserve a double inheritance. And I don't know, he's, he hasn't come around on it yet. Please pray for him. Uh, all throughout the Bible, we see giving the first, giving the best, making God a priority. We worship God in our giving. But not only that, number two, giving is an act of faith. Giving is an act of faith. When we give, we're demonstrating our faith that God's word is true. Giving is an act of faith. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world. By the way, who's rich in this world? We are, okay? So this is for us. This is very applicable for us. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, don't be proud, nor trust in uncertain riches. Hey, folks, Liberty Baptist Church, let's be careful about trusting what we have. Let's be careful about being confident in placing our hope in our bank account, our retirement account, our income. That's not where our trust is. That's not where our hope is, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. And what else does Paul want Timothy to charge those that are rich to do? That they do good, that they be rich in good works, 
ready to distribute, willing to communicate. You know, what the, you know what that means, ready to distribute, willing to communicate? To give, to be generous with the money that they have, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So church, 21st century Americans, all the rich folks, don't trust in your riches. Remember Matthew 6, how Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth where things decay and they get stolen or lost. Earthly treasures are temporary. That beautiful home will decay. A really nice car will rust. It won't rust nearly as fast because you're in California, but it will rust eventually, all right? Uh, earthly treasures are temporary and they are unpredictable. Placing your confidence and security in money is foolish in God's eyes. Instead, we show faith in God by laying up treasure in heaven. That is what Paul is telling Timothy to communicate to the rich, that when you give, when you use your money to help others, you're laying up treasure in heaven, that you are making an investment, just not here on earth, making an investment in heaven, one where things won't decay and they won't get stolen and they won't get lost. They are permanent to be enjoyed forever and ever. And now let's look at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Proverbs 19, verse 17. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Remember, giving is an act of faith. So he that hath pity on the poor, when you show compassion and generosity to those who are less fortunate, what does the Bible say? That which he hath given will, be, he, will he pay again. You lend to the Lord. Giving to others who have need is also directed to the Lord. Do you realize that? That when you give to other people, yeah, you're giving to them and you're helping them, but you're also giving to God. That's directed to him. When we help those who are less fortunate, the generosity is directed toward God. By faith, we know that compassion and generosity toward the poor is ultimately an eternal investment. Do you remember Matthew chapter 25? Jesus is speaking about one day the king will speak to his servants and he will say, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the servants, and, and the king here, of course, is God, and the servants will say to the king, they'll say, uh, when did we do that? We don't remember that. And the king will say to them what? He will say, in as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. What a wonderful truth that when we give, we are expressing faith because we believe by faith that it's not just a gift to those who are less fortunate. It's not just money that I will never see again and now I'm out that money. No, no, it's an investment. It's a gift to God. It is an investment in our eternity. So giving is an act of faith. And now finally, number three, giving is an act of love. Giving is an act of love. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8. Paul here speaking again to the Corinthian church, a rich church, by the way. He says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So what's happening here? Paul is taking up an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. The Corinthian church is rich, and so Paul is saying, it would be really great, guys, if you would give some money to help out in this offering. But he says, I speak not by commandment. Corinthians, you don't have to give. This is not an obligation, but 
but by the occasion of, of, of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. This would be a great opportunity to show your brothers and sisters in Christ who are less fortunate than you that you love them and you express love to them by a monetary gift. You don't have to, but I think it would be a great idea. And then notice how Paul says this, and, and I love this because it seems so passive aggressive as I read this from Paul's perspective. He says, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Hey, Corinthian church, uh, it would be great if you gave to the poor saints at Jerusalem. And you don't have to, don't be obligated. Uh, it would be a great opportunity for you to show your love. And, and, and by the way, I mean, remember Jesus, the guy that we follow and serve? I mean, he gave for us. He was rich, and we were poor, but he gave and became poor so that we could become rich, and he uh, died on the cross, and he gave his life so we can have eternity in heaven. And so he gave, and he's a pretty good example. But again, I mean, you don't have to give. You don't want to, but I mean, if you want to be like Jesus, I think you're going to give, right? I feel like that's what he's saying here. But it's true. In the very next chapter, in, in chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, we shouldn't give grudgingly or out of necessity because God loves a, a what? A cheerful giver. Folks, giving is not a drudgery. Giving is not a, oh man, here we go again. I guess I'll drop a check in the offering plate. I guess I'll click here and send some money in. Okay, yeah, we had a stewardship Sunday. I, I get it. Okay, I get it, Nate. I get it, Pastor Thompson. I'll, I'll, I'll do better in 2021. I'll try to up the giving a little bit. No, 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 no. If that's, if that's your takeaway, then you're missing it completely. No, no. Giving is an opportunity to be like the Lord. It's an opportunity for us to demonstrate love. God loves a cheerful giver. Let's look now at Luke chapter 10 and verse 27. Luke chapter 10, verse 27. And he, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? See, what had happened here is a lawyer had come to Jesus. He asked him a question. He was trying to trick him. He was trying to, to, to mess him up. He said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lays it out. says, if you can do this, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you can do that perfectly, you'll have eternal life. And then the lawyer, <laughs> in a very lawyerly fashion, says, well, let's define terms here. Who is my neighbor? Well, maybe I can do that. Depends. Who is my neighbor? Is it people who look like me, who speak the same language, who have the same culture, who, who, who act like me, who have the same interests? And, and in the very next verses, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that story? How a man was beaten and robbed on the side of the road, and then, and it was, it was a Jewish man. And then a priest comes by, and he sees him, and he just walks into the side of the road. He doesn't want to bother. He doesn't want to get involved. And then a Levite walks by. His countrymen, people that, if anybody should help him, it should be a priest. It should be a Levite. It should be those who are in the service of God, but they don't. But then the third guy that comes along is a Samaritan. And you have to understand in that culture in that day, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. The Jews viewed them as inferior. I mean, it was unthinkable to fraternize with a Samaritan. But the Samaritan helps him. He shows compassion. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He makes sure that he's taken care of. He gives the innkeeper money. He says, take care of this guy. I'll come back. If you have to spend more money, I will pay you more money. Just make sure that he gets better. And at the end of that story, Jesus said, so who is the, his neighbor? said, the one who showed compassion. I said, yep. Yeah. 
Go thou and do likewise. You see, your neighbor is the one who is within your reach, and you have the ability to help. Jesus says uh, we need to love our neighbor, not if they believe like us, not if they act like us, not if they look like us, not if they are within our reach and we have the ability to help. That is our neighbor. The one who truly loves is the one who gives. See how that works? If you truly love, you're going to give. See, I can tell my wife that I love her, and I can say it all the time, but I never help out with the kids. I never do anything around the house. If I never get her anything for Christmas or for anniversary or for her birthday, do you think that she's going to feel loved by me? No, okay, I'm, I'm going to save you the suspense. No, she will not. Because saying you love but never giving is empty. And we know intuitively that you cannot love without giving. Now let's look finally at John chapter 3 and verse 16. Let's bring this all together. John chapter 3 and verse 16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved that he gave. The greatest gift ever given was Jesus. And the greatest expression of love was also Jesus himself. Greatest gift, greatest expression of love. Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to pay the highest price, to pay the penalty for our sins. He came to earth, he became a man, he faced temptation, he endured persecution, he died a violent death on the cross for us. And he offers us forgiveness and peace and fulfillment and a, an eternity in heaven with him because he loves us. He loves us so much that he gave. And I, I know this is, this is an, a message on money. But can I just say, if, if you're here this morning in the room, and you have never accepted that gift of God's love, then I hope you will do that. I hope you will make that commitment. I hope you will talk to somebody about it. If you are not sure, if you have questions, I hope you will talk to me. I hope you will talk to Pastor Thompson. I hope you will understand that, that love necessitates giving. And God loved us so much that he gave. And so when he asks us to give, is it really that hard of an ask? In light of what he's done for us, and he says, can you also follow in my footsteps and love others through giving? I think we should say, of course, sign me up. So, giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of faith. Giving is an act of love. Let's commit in the year 2021, let's commit to being generous Christians. Let's commit to worshiping God in our giving, to showing faith that he will provide and showing our love for him. Remember, we love him because he first loved us. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.